All right, so today, like I said, we're going to be having our testimonies. Uh, I had the chance uh, to get away with a bunch of folks at one point in time with the vineyard and a bunch of pastors in the room. And what we did uh, throughout the entirety of the day, first part of the day, is everyone to share their testimony about how they met Christ, where they grew up. Uh, and it was really a profound thing. And I think that oftentimes when we think about our lives, we might not think they're necessarily that special, but everyone's life is special, and everyone's story is special. How God intersects with our life um, and meets us is incredibly special. And so through all the journeys that we have and the difficulties and the ups and downs, um, everyone has a story. And so your story is very important. So on the fifth Sunday, we just like to give a couple people an opportunity to share their story with us. Today, we're going to be hearing from Todd Majorly, uh, who is going, just came back from seminary, who's going to be a pastor here at the church. And then we're also going to be hearing from Charles. And so, I mean, the cool thing is, again, about testimonies, there's no right or wrong. It's just your story. And your story is amazing. Um, and it's always good to be able to hear from some other people. So, Charles, you want to come on up here and share with us your testimony? Hi, guys. How's it going? Um, for those of you who haven't met me personally, my name is Charles Rice. Um, I am going to be sharing my testimony, um, not just as a Christian, but um, I'm a drug addict. Um, if you can't tell. Um, that's how I met Sean, uh, unfortunately. Um, drugs is something I've struggled with my whole life. Um, and so 90 days ago, I, I went to the people at Visions of the Cross, and um, I had to ask them for help because I'm not just like a drug addict, like um, somebody who smokes too much pot on the weekends. Like, I'm about as bad as it gets. I was um, on death's door. Intravenously, um, and I was on death's door when I went to Visions of the Cross and asked for help. And I'm somebody sharing about um, what I think that has to do with um, with God and Jesus, and how um, how Jesus has helped me, and how I have hope for the future. So. I grew up in Chico, California. Um, my parents are from LA. My dad's father was uh, in World War II. He served on the um, USS Enterprise. Um, he made it home from the war, and, um, and he got in a car accident when my dad was like six years old. Um, my dad told me that he found out his dad died uh, walking home from school. Some neighbor kids had heard about it, and. Uh, and they were teasing him on his way home. And he got home, he found out his dad had passed away. And um, he was the oldest son of five kids. My grandfather, you know, in different marriages and different families, um, there's different dynamics, right? So um, my dad's dad was the responsible one in the family. You know, he came back from the war and I imagine him finding my grandmother and she was a little bit more self-centered and stuff. And uh, he found somebody to take care of in her and they had five children. Unfortunately, he passed away, and um, my grandmother then, uh, she uh, fortunately um, wasn't the best mom after that. Um, she, uh, she dated a series of uh, gentlemen that were abusive towards my father and his siblings. 
So by the age of 13, my dad was, um, he had to be mean enough to scare any other men out of the house to protect his younger siblings. You know, unfortunately, um, those years prior to that, um, I'm sure were terrible for him. Um, and then, so by the time uh, 15 years old, he was a, he was a criminal and he was a heroin addict. Um, and um, so, um, and that's something he struggled with his, his entire life. I, um, I remember at the age of four, uh, my parents were super loving. I'm the youngest son. Uh, I just have one other sibling, my older sister. Uh, thank God she's not, she's uh, only like real like saved Christian in my family. I thank God for that. And also she's not, she's not a drug addict. So um, those are two really wonderful blessings. She lives in Montreal with her husband. She has a large family um, and she's amazing. Um, so my, Growing up, my father like pulling me aside at like four or five or six years old, something like that, and uh, telling me that telling me he was a drug addict and that he, you know, that um, that things were going to be a little different, like things were going to be different in my family. Basically, he was like uh, sure, like telling me <coughs> he was like apologizing. I don't know why he did this, but he was like uh, telling me, you know, sorry, I, I didn't. Intend. I think uh, what it was was my mom uh, was kind of trying to lock him down and. They had two kids together, so, you know, he was trying to just, like, shake the responsibility. He was telling me, you know, basically I'm not going to be the greatest dad, but he loved me, but I love you, you know, and saying sorry. I, I remember telling him, don't worry, dad. You know, I remember being worried about my dad my entire life. And uh, shortly after that, um, I was in about second grade. We were living in Chico, and my dad went to prison for uh, impersonating a police officer and robbing people. Uh, uh, he got caught with, like, a, a, a police, like, So we moved down to LA, um, and my mom had to go to work then. And so I was pretty much on my own until 5 p.m. every day. My mom was super stressed out. Um, and it was okay, though. We lived in a Simi Valley. Um, I spent a lot of time with my friends. Um, growing up in that kind of situation, uh, obviously, you um, you spend time with people that you can relate to. And I, I gravitated towards um, other kids that had that kind of home life. Were raised by our grandparents or single mothers who were, uh, I've always been a good kid. Uh, I've never had like bad intentions or wish to harm anybody, but um, those are just who you, you know you relate with. Um, I, I, you know, I felt more comfortable around people that understood. I, I felt uncomfortable around like people with healthy families or you know they would want to know why, why don't you have any money or why can't you know you do these things like that normal people do. And um, I. stressed out, but uh, she, she was really hard on my sister. Um, my dad got back from prison at, um, when I was in fifth grade, going into sixth grade, and um, I was so happy he was back, you know. Um, he, he started taking me to anti-narcotics anonymous meetings, and uh, uh, he had a plumber contractor's license, um, and he was telling me we were going to start a business, and uh, that he was going to make things right with my mom. We were gonna, they were going to buy a house together, and everything I needed to hear, you know, and it's like a huge weight off my shoulders. And about um, six months into that, um, he started getting high, and um, he would take me to work with him on, on in the summertime. And um, at first he didn't admit it, that he was getting high, but uh, he stopped making promises like that, and then eventually 
he had he you know he told me he he was getting high and uh, I would go work in the San Fernando Valley with him and uh, we would spend like hours waiting for him to get uh, his heroin and uh, and then eventually he started uh, using it with uh, needles in front of me in the car and uh, and told me not to tell my mom you know um, it's not that that like I wasn't hit or uh, sexually abused. And my dad told me he loved me, but um, I think this is just the devil's way of mani like manipulating your mind when you're on drugs. So I think it's a huge part of his enemy. And somehow he was able to convince himself that was okay. Um, but he did you know, I, I, he just must not have seen my perspective of like, when you see something like that, uh, and then my parents now they stopped getting along, so he's just coming by to pick me up uh, on weekends or whatnot. Um, and uh, I wouldn't see him for two weeks at a time. I was extremely worried about him. And uh, so um, I kept that hidden from my mom, but it just it really crushed my hope. Like I was, you know, and then like he would get clean sometimes for a little bit and then uh, make those promises again. And then my hope would get, uh, my heart would be broken again over and over like that. Um, he also did that manipulation to my mom. Um, so by the age of 15, um, my sister, when she turned 15, she had moved in with an aunt who didn't have children, my dad's sister, but she's a nurse practitioner in back up north to Chico, California. And uh, from living in that stable environment, she went on to uh, get over 4.0 GPA. She got a scholarship to University of San Diego, UCSD, and was able to get a master's degree in biochemistry. And uh, she, she's been gone ever since. She visits with my parents and helps and stuff, but uh, she never came home, which I'm, I'm happy for. I was a little bit closer with my parents, so unfortunately, I, uh, I inherited more of their um, their problems, and uh, and I forgive them. You know, everybody has has their issues. Um, there's a lot of people with a lot worse problems, but um, you know, I just got my heart broken a lot as a young man. Uh, by the time I was in eighth grade, I remember um, I started ditching school and going to smoke pot um, with friends and. And, take, and then shortly after that, my hand followed. Um, and taking these drugs made me feel like um, it felt so natural. Like it, it's like when you're a kid with drug addict parents, um, you have to bear the burden of everything you're, that's happening, but without the drugs. That's why why drug addicts are able to do the things they do and the lifestyle they live is they have drugs to, to mask or um, to make it bearable. You know. So by the time I hit 15, like um, my heart was so broken. You know, originally I just like uh, laughed a lot, but I, I was never able to concentrate in school. Um, uh, and so then by the time drugs came around at early high school, I was just, uh, it, it was like a relief. It, it felt so natural and uh, I just feel like I really didn't have much of a chance not to use, although my dad did ex uh, expose me to the Narcotics Anonymous games and stuff. My family wasn't religious growing up. My, um, my parents kind of, they think church is just kind of uh, like my mom kind of is, but my dad uh, treats it like it's silly. They believe in some kind of afterlife or that they don't believe life's just meaningless, but um, I was never exposed to any kind of healthy healthy uh, relationship with God or uh, Jesus, for that matter. Um, so at 15, I moved uh, um, in high school now, I'm finishing school. Um, I went to the continuation high school, which is school for kids that are behind on their credits. Um, it was super embarrassing not having like, um, enough money to like pay for lunch and stuff. Um, 
at 15 or 16, 17 years old, my mom lost her job um, and we moved back out to Chico. I remember helping her move and then um, she got a prescription to Oxycontin. And, um, and I started getting those from her. Uh, sometimes she would to me, sometimes I would just steal them. But I would take one of those pills, I would crush it up and start it and, uh, and I'd feel content for the rest of the day. Just, uh, and uh, when those things came out, they told people they weren't addictive but they're extremely addictive. Um, my mom went on to take those for a long time, um, and uh, eventually by the age of 19, um, that was the first time I went to a treatment center. I, uh, I went to a treatment center in Los Angeles, California for 90 days, and that was my first experience uh, with uh, Jesus Christ. Um, they, we went to meetings and stuff, went to church, but I actually like opened my heart. I started reading the Bible for the first time, the first book I read was the book of Job, and this guy was like, damn, that's not the, it's kind of a lot to buy off more than you chew, but uh, he told me to get into the, uh, the New Testament and stuff, and, uh, and uh, so I, I don't believe in Jesus because of, um, anybody says so, you know, Sean's cool, but I wouldn't just believe something because of that, uh, but I believe that anybody, if they pray with an open heart and say, God, please reveal yourself to me, speak to me in some way, show me that you're real. My experience is always there's always been some kind of some kind of um, significant uh, factor that lets me know uh, that Jesus is God and He's real. Uh, anyway, I went to rehab and I came back and I went back to the same unhealthy lifestyle. Um, by that point, my dad was living in this lady's trailer, um, selling heroin. Uh, he was taking basically she was a lady who inherited some money and she, my dad just kind of moved in on her and. Uh, spending her money. She was addicted. They were both addicted to heroin. I was 19 years old and I was doing uh, meth at the time and I shared a room with my dad because while he acted like their boyfriend and girlfriend, he didn't like sleep with her or they didn't share a room. And I, I, I knew he was just taking advantage of her, but he would tell her I love you and stuff. Uh, so it was like super unhealthy and he had no reason to do that. That's why I never understand. He had no reason to do that because he made enough money as a heroin, I mean as a, um, as a plumbing contractor. But um, anyway, I'll try to so quick. This is just something significant. Uh, so um, I was, I always had sleep paralysis as a young man, uh, as a child growing up, and sometimes I'll get like weird dreams where I'm like floating out of my body or weird stuff like that. Well, this one night in this drug house trailer, this was like one of the worst times of my dad's um, drug addiction. Like his, his uh, arms became like fully scar tissue, and his arms were always bleeding. Uh, and I'm surprised he survived this period. But I'm at this trailer, and I got sleep paralysis this one night. I was 19 and uh, and I, it was like I couldn't move but I, I could see and I opened my eyes and um, I was trying to wake myself up but I couldn't and um, I'm looking at the ceiling and there's this like, it was like a ball of shadow and like smoke it looked like and it was like it floated halfway across the ceiling and then it like noticed that I could see it and it turned into like this face of this like horrible wicked old woman and just like snarled at me and then it shot from the ceiling onto my chest and it choked me for like two minutes. Like I thought I was gonna die, but I, I knew the Lord's Prayer by that point and I just, I just let go and I just said the Lord's Prayer in my head over and over again. And uh, eventually after about two minutes, uh, it was like it just released me and then like, it wasn't like I was awake and then woke up. It was like it released me and then like now I can move. It was the craziest thing and I'll never forget that. Um, later on, I, I I found out on Google and some stuff that oftentimes sleep paralysis is called old hack syndrome. Um, if you Google it, you can see that. There's a, also a, a documentary 
about it on uh, YouTube called Density. And it talks about these different like sleep paralysis like things that have been attacking people for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, in every culture, they have these same things. And I believe it's demonic. I think I believe drug addiction is um, is a form of demonic uh, oppression. And um, so, long story short, uh, 90 days ago, I went to Visions Across. I knew that was a faith led program and I knew it was a good program that people cared because there's some places that are uh, are just financially based and uh, you can really feel the difference if they care or not. So I was my time right over um, But so I went there 90 days ago, I was shooting fentanyl and methamphetamine into my neck right before I went in there. Um, I went there and I asked them for help. They I fell asleep in my car on their street with my car still running and one of the counselors came and he found me and I was going to take off but he Calm me down and told me to pull over, and they were gracious enough to let me in there. Um, 90 days later, this is the day that I get out, um, this very day. Um, and basically, in there, what they did was they, they provided a stable environment and they shield me. Um, they sh provided a hedge of protection from, because I believe places like that um, can shield you from um, the wiles of the devil, the enemies, um, the enemies' attacks, you know. Um, I, I, um, I've grown a lot during the time there. My future's bright. Um, and this church, it, it brought me to this church. So, um, you know, I hope you guys uh, are okay with me because I'm okay. <laughs> here going forward. And uh, I just want to thank you all. Um, this church has been so amazing. Sean is a huge role model for me. And I, I can't thank you guys enough. This is the most like, authentic, like, best group of people I could like, ask for. So, um, thank you for listening to my testimony. Um, real quick before, I just want to read you guys, I don't have any real reason, but I want to read my favorite verse in the Bible. It's always helped me when I've been in jail or rehab. Um, it's just my absolute favorite part of the whole Bible, so I'm just going to share that with you guys real quick. Right, let's see. Um, James 1-2, Profiting from Trials. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith pr produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for if he doubts, he is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. All right, thank you guys very much. Well, thank you, brother that with us. Um, I love, as terrifying as public speaking is, I love Testimony Sunday. Uh, and we do it for more than the fact that we just love it as a community. It's actually, there's a powerful reference in Revelation uh, that says they will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Uh, and it isn't often, I think, in the word where we, where we see such a depiction of the magnitude of the power of your own story. Uh, when, you, when you have that listed in the same sentence as the blood of the Lamb, and the word of your testimony. Um, and that's really, I think, one way of looking at the Old and New Testaments. The Old Testimony and the New Testimony are both are testimonies. Both are full of books of people who saw the Lord at work in their life and then told somebody about it and wrote it down. That's powerful. That's powerful, essential stuff. And I, I want to encourage everybody. I, I, will, I will demonstrate uh, not so well, potentially, today. But this is something I think we ought to practice. Uh, we, ought to, we ought to spend time in the year and think about our story and think about our testimony. And think about how we would answer if someone said, tell me your story. Where have you seen God in your life? Uh, I don't do that nearly enough. I'll try again here today. I feel like it's different every time I try. Um, but it's something I think, 
that have power in it. The Lord is faithful through the story of our testimonies. Um, so I, I was raised in a Christian home um, by a loving mother and father, um, but I didn't much care for church. Um, I, I didn't get church. Uh, I would sit down in the, in the pew and I'd hear people talk about how real God was, and God didn't seem real to me. Well, I heard God's voice last night. I would think, I've never heard God's voice. Or I saw God move in my life, and I would think, I've never seen God move. What are you guys doing? Like, how are you seeing and hearing God? Uh, and I, and I, in my late teens, I figured, okay, either everybody's lying, which is terrible, or you're all telling the truth, which is terrible, because I'm not getting to have that experience. Uh, by the time I was finally 18 and my parents gave me a choice in the matter, I just stopped going. Uh, and I didn't go back to church until my late 20s. Uh, but I don't know that I ever really walked away from God, praise the Lord. Uh, but it was about my mid-20s or late 20s when I started to feel like this friction in my life where I hadn't given up on the idea that God was real. But nothing in my life was demonstrating it to me. I wasn't experiencing the realness of God. Uh, and I had already left church, so there's not much more I could leave. Uh, to get away from that, and it just kind of drove me a little crazy. And I remember I was here in Reading during that season of my life, and I was walking up and down the sidewalk by my condo, and I just figured I would do the only thing I could think to do, which is just yell to God. Um, and I think, uh, I know, I've heard many turning point stories in people's testimonies where it started with them just having an angry conversation with God, which is sometimes one of the most honest kind of conversations we can have. And I'm walking up and down the sidewalk, why do you do it this way? Or if you're loving and you're good and you're real, why would you be so distant? Why would you be so invisible? Why would you do it this way? Would you just do something that I can see or say something that I can hear? Would you be real in this moment? And nothing happened, but it felt amazing to just lay it out there. Uh, and I kind of just decided, okay, I'm just gonna keep doing this. I don't know what else to do until God finally does something. And I might've just kept going for weeks and weeks, but thankfully the next day, I'm walking down the same sidewalk, praying the same prayer. God, say something, do something. Make yourself known. And I noticed that there's a silver Honda Civic that started to pace me. And I'm not, you know, a swift man. I'm pretty big, and so I move at Todd pace. And cars tend to move much faster than that. So when a car slows down to my pace and just starts tracking with me, that, that's a little awkward. Uh, and so I'm in my head, uh, you know, having grown up in the Los Angeles area, my head straight goes to, I'm about to get mugged. I'm praying to the Lord, be real. And instead, I'm just going to get gunned down on the sidewalk. This is amazing. <laughs> Uh, but I'm not going to outrun a car, so let's just have it. So I turn to the car, and it immediately pulls into a parking lot next to me. And the last person on earth I expected popped out of a tiny little lady, like five foot nothing, steps out of the car, leaves her door open, and just charges up the sidewalk at me. And I'm super confused now. So she comes to a stop in front of me and kind of catches her breath and says, I'm terribly sorry. I wouldn't normally do this, but while I was driving by, the Lord said, you have to stop. I have a message for this man. So I'm literally praying God say something. And out of a car comes a woman who says, God has something to say. Uh, which already, I think I just heard that high-pitched whine you hear, like when a flashbang goes off in a movie, you're just like you're stunned for a minute. And she starts to prophesy over me. And I've not really had that experience before. I wasn't quite acquainted with the, you know, the atmosphere of wedding. It's a little more common, I think, up here than in other places, but this was my first time. And she just starts speaking boldly to this total stranger on the sidewalk. God's about to take you into a new season that you're going to love. He's going to take something that's been wrong in your life and turn it on its head. And then this third part, which I still don't know what it will end up being, she said, there's going to be something about writing. And then she just looks up at me, hopefully. Does any of that make sense? I don't know if any of you have had the experience of being given a word for somebody else, 
Many times I've heard that people who are given the word don't really know what it's supposed to mean. They just know the Lord is saying, say this. So she was having that moment. And I it just, as I collected my jaw up off the sidewalk, I basically said, boy, uh, I was just standing here praying that the Lord would say something, and here you come saying something. And so I kind of shared that with her, and she's delighted and relieved. <laughs> and, and we just talked for a little while. Her name was Karen. Uh, and then she just took off. I never saw her again. But that stunned me. That experience stunned me. And I, and I always want to emphasize in telling the story, it's not like the next day everything, you know, the clouds parted and everything changed. But that marked a moment where things began to turn. And that moment was followed by more invitations to community than I think I'd ever had. Now that's an invitation to the very thing I kind of ran away from as a teenager. And it took me a while to start saying yes. But I believe in the power of persistent invitation. And as it happened, uh, I was working with our former worship leader here and a dear friend who's a pastor of Four Square Church. They just happened to be my colleagues. And the Lord moved in their spirits at that same moment. And they began to invite me back into church community. And I think it must have taken nine months before I finally gave somebody a yes. Uh, it was to Jared, our former worship leader. Every month he would invite me to our little brewing queue. We used to do these grills. We need to start doing this again. Uh, we would grill and hang out. Uh, and, you know, the invitation sounded horrific. You know, it's going to be awkward. It's gonna, I don't know anybody there. It's church. I already hate that. Uh, no way. You know, but I love Jared. And so by like the ninth attempt, I finally thought, okay, I love my brother. Uh, this is going to be terrible. I'm going to be awkward. I'm, I'm going to sit in a corner somewhere. I'm going to be nervous. And, and uh, But we'll do it once, and I'll say I did it, and we'll, we'll stop getting these invitations. So I said yes, and I went. And it was on a Saturday. And I was super awkward, and I sat in a corner. And like all the things I feared happened. But somehow, it was okay. That was the weird part. Uh, I remember sitting over in a corner by, there's another Todd here named Todd Smith. He was a man of few words. But he was sitting off in the corner and looked perfectly comfortable somehow, being a man of few words. And nobody was messing with him. And he had this comfortable, accepted place in the community. And so I tucked in right next to him, hoping I wasn't bothering him. And I just sat silently <laughs> with the other Todd for like an hour. It was ridiculous. <laughs> But nobody like made me feel unwelcome. Nobody tried to pry me into an uncomfortable place. They just made a place for me in the community. And it wasn't so terrible, as nervous as I was. So I figured, okay, we'll give it one more shot. The next day is Sunday. So I'll go and I'll hate it, and then I'll be done. So I walked in, and before I made it to my pew, I just tried to make a beeline for a pew in the back. I had been tackled by like three grandmothers. Um, who, you know, three different times I was welcomed, I was spotted, I was seen which is normally terrifying for an introvert, but something about the way a mother or a grandmother would wrap their arms around you, it's not so bad. Uh, so by the time I got to my queue, three different people had welcomed me and noticed me, and then just let me be. You know, they didn't try to shove me to the front or make me uncomfortable, uh, and it wasn't so bad. I still felt awkward, but I just kept going and kept going. And, and I just felt a grace. You know, I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but I'm learning that one of the, one of the sensations of the hallmarks of the fingerprints of grace is a peace that doesn't belong, or a peace that surprises you, or a sense that it's okay. But the circumstances aren't normally okay. You know, it's just a, it's a conspicuous peace. The, the word calls it the peace that passes understanding. And I started to feel that, you know, for the first time in church. It really settled in. I know our brother talked about the joy of finding this community and the authentic nature of it. And I, and I would use that word. It was something very real. Um, I had church experiences where it feels like everybody's walking around being crushed by a pressure to be perfect and 
say the right Sunday school things all the time and nothing but, and you've probably walked through communities where no one dares complain about the hardship of life because we only rejoice and we only celebrate the goodness. But there was just a realness. Um, the pastors exemplified that. The pastor families exemplified that. So I settled in. In that season of my life, I started to get more invitations in different communities. I started to go to Bible study fellowship. I started going out on homeless missions with Grandma Cindy, who's not with us anymore. Um, but um, I just felt this sense to start saying yes to the invitation to be with our community. Uh, and through the communities, people began to affirm me and speak to me and see me. Um, I think one of the great treasures of community is that you get a perspective about yourself that's more than just from you. Sometimes we can very easily be our own worst critics. We can only see the worst in ourselves. And it can be a big deal to have someone else see more than that and to speak that to you. To have a whole community start speaking that to you. Um, that really starts to resonate. And uh, there were things about myself I didn't believe, uh, I couldn't hope for, um, that other people began to speak to me. Uh, and in time, um, I started to get invitations to, to share on a Sunday or read the Word. And the Lord, I mean, nudged me along. If I could see in the spiritual realm, I'd probably be like some divine goat just shoving me, you know, forward to say yes to some of these things that I would normally never say yes to. But one of the, one of the building confidences of community was I would do this thing and I would feel totally inadequate, but then they would invite me back the next Sunday. <laughs> the world didn't swallow me up. I didn't explode into fragments. Um, you know, I, I, I joke sometimes that most of the confidence I have now in my life is just having survived uncomfortable things. You know, you wake up the next morning and you're still there. Um, it's not so much the feeling that I'm knocking anything out of the park, but you, you survive, you endure, and the people welcome you and love you the next day. Um, and then people began to speak in seminary uh, to me, which totally shocked me as, as an avid, uh, passionate, proud introvert. I love my seclusion, I love my quiet time. And so sitting here right now is like the last place on earth I would have ever thought I would be. But again, that odd piece settled into the invitation. And I found to my surprise I wanted to say yes to this, or at least knock on the door. And I had all these reasons why I thought seminary would be impossible. I've now said seminary like three times to those here. Like, first of all, I don't have a bachelor's degree, and seminary was a master's program. Well, you can't do that, can you? But we'll just knock on the door and see what happens. Well, it turns out accrediting agencies will let a certain percentage of students uh, by way of a panel and committee, apply for a master's without having a bachelor's. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll apply, and they'll say no, because my undergrad's in computer science. You can't go from associates in computer science to master's in divinity. That makes no sense. Uh, I sent in my letters, my references, and the, and the application committee said, okay, we'll let you know in about a month. Each month we hold uh, a committee, uh, and we pray over it, and we vote over it. The next day, I got an email. You're accepted. Now, the acceptance was more than just a miracle because of, of gotten, having gotten in there at all. But Asbury Seminary is where I've been in Kentucky. And Asbury is a legend in my family. I never thought I'd be at Asbury, but I grew up hearing stories about it. My parents met, fell in love, and married at Asbury. All my uncles, all my aunts, 15 members of my family have gone to Asbury. But none of that is for computer science. I never thought I would be a part of that. So to get accepted without a bachelor's at the legendary school of my family story, it was just outrageous. And now the next hurdle was, okay, I don't have money for this. And I don't particularly care to get a degree and then be under like $100,000 of debt. That doesn't sound wonderful. So God, you've got to make a way here, financially, somehow. And, and I'm not sure I'm going to qualify for scholarships, so I just figure all this, again, we're just going to keep knocking on these doors until one is finally closed, and then I'll sell, tell the Lord, okay, I tried, but obviously I can't. So I sit down with my boss, 
and tell them I have to give you the worst business proposal you've ever heard in your life. Uh, I need to move away, so I need to start working remotely. I can't give you a consistent schedule because I'm going to be working really hard in school. I need to work about half as many hours as I've been working. I need to pay you about twice as much as you pay. So I need to control my schedule. You need to pay me more, and I'm going to work less. How does that sound? And my boss, who's a believer, he laughed like in my face at breakfast. Yeah, yeah, that's about the worst I've ever heard, Tom. Now tell me why. And so I just shared the testimony. I just shared the story. Here's what's happening. I think the Lord is opening an invitation here. But there are some hurdles I have to get over. And so he listens and he smiles. Uh, and he says, okay, I think what you've given me is like the bare skin of your teeth number. Like you're going to be eating vomit and bologna for five years. That's the number you've given me. What do you really need? And so we work it through, and I kind of just, I'm not a poker player, I just lay it all out on the table. He goes, okay, I think what you need is a little more than you asked for. So I'm going to give you a little more than you asked for. And, and his final words to me were, far be it for me to stand in the way of the Lord. Wow. So that's hurdle number two that I was sure was a closed door. And then the third hurdle was almost comedic. There was no room in the dorms. There was no dorm room. Where am I going to sleep at the seminary? Uh, and literally the day before I was supposed to drive across the country from California to Kentucky, a room opened for me uh, in, in their dorm. So like all these little moments that should have been no's suddenly opened up. Now I don't know that the, the providence of the Lord or the presence of the Lord or the planning of the Lord always looks that obvious. But that series of events was kind of hard to do. Uh, I've often complained I have a hard time hearing God. But that was not a moment where I had a hard time <laughs> hearing God. And so I went, and it was one of the most challenging seasons of my life. I assure you, you were humbled every day in the center. Uh, you were surrounded by people who seemed so much smarter, so much wiser, uh, and from all around the world. I don't know what I was expecting of Wilmore, Kentucky. It's kind of like Mayberry. It's just this tiny little town. But about 30% of the student body is international. So I remember sitting in Old Testament class with a woman named Bonnie from China, who, who was a veteran of ministry. She was a woman in China who was a pastor in an underground church for the last 10 years. That was my classmate. And so I started to discover very quickly that the great treasure of seminary is not 783 books that you have to read, which you do. But it was the people. It was, again, community uh, that you get to sit with, the stories you get to hear, the testimony that you get to encounter, uh, and the way that that builds you up. One of, the, one of the wild discoveries of my life lately has been, you know, I've got this long list of things that I need from God. And I've been certain that he just needs, that the way I'm going to get these is he's just going to give them to me directly. But most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, the things that I really need in life, I end up getting through the community. I end up getting wisdom from you. I get insight from you. I get a loving presence from you. Most of the time, when the Lord provides what he's going to provide, it comes through the people. That seems to have been his intention from the very beginning, is to work his work through communities and through people. So I've just come back. I've finished my um, on-site classes. I'll do a couple from Reading. Uh, and now I'm going to begin the, the, the intimidating work of becoming a pastor. But I've, I've, again, I've come out of seminary not with the confidence that I'm amazing and I, and I have some brilliant things to offer, but that God is just ever faithful. I never feel adequate. Any time that I've stood up and spoken, I've felt like, oh God, you've got to do something with that, because I sure didn't. Um, and every time he's faithful. He has done, you've probably heard pastors say this, my most confident sermons have been the least effective <laughs> ones where I walked in, and I said, I can't wait for them to hear this. <clears throat> nothing. Just nothing. And the ones where I was sure I was just absolutely going to bomb, and everybody was going to throw me out the window, were the ones that were most effective. And, it, and there's a mercy in that, right? Like, it's a reminder every time that, the, the oomph, the power, um, 
the weight that comes with these, these yeses that we give to God in service. We don't have to manufacture that power. We don't have to manufacture the effectiveness. The Lord does that. The Lord carries that for us. We have to give them a yes. We have to show up in intimidating places and be willing to tell our story uh, and to make ourselves vulnerable. And we have to throw ourselves at his feet and trust that as inadequate and unprepared as we may feel, he's faithful. And he knows us better than even we do. Uh, and he works powerfully through someone's yes. And he works powerfully through persistent invitations. As a, as a last thought here, uh, if there are people in your life who you think could use a community, could use a group of people to really see them and speak truth and love in their life, and they're reluctant to come, keep inviting them. Do it lovingly, do it gently, don't shove them, but just keep showing up in their life and opening the door for them. I'm here, back from seminary, because this community kept inviting me, uh, and kept opening the door, and the Lord has been faithful through it. So I guess we're just about out of time, I'll, I'll leave it at that, but I, I wanted to thank all of you for being a part of that community, for, being, for saying yes to the Lord. For those of you who have responded when he's given you a word for me, it's, it's obviously changed the shape and the direction of my life. Uh, and I would encourage you, encourage you to be watching for those moments when he gives you a word for someone else. Uh, and to be bold, like that woman, Karen was, who popped out of a Civic and approached a 300-pound German on the sidewalk all alone. <laughs> uh, she changed the trajectory of my life because she was brave and willing to respond to the Lord. So I guess that's, we'll finish it right about there. We're going to take communion today, as we do every Sunday. Communion is a wonderful moment uh, in the Word. It's also something we're commanded to do together. But it's a, um, it's a moment where you can encounter the presence of God. It's a bit of a mystery how this works. Um, but the Word tells us that the Lord is with us in this. Um, and it's been a long, celebrated tradition uh, to not just have some crackers and wine. That's not just what we're doing here. Certainly, we do this to remember the Lord. But also, we do this uh, as a sacrament, as a moment to encounter Christ, right here, right now, His Spirit with us uh, in this act of obedience. So we take uh, the bread together, we'll each come up down the center, um, we'll take uh, the implement, we'll take the bread which represents His body, which was broken for us, we'll dip it in the wine, which represents His blood, which was shed for us, and hang on to it. We'll walk back to our pews of the outsides. Once everybody here in the family has the elements, we'll take it together as one family. Uh, so please feel free to start making the Father God, we thank you for your presence in us. Lord, we thank you um, for that extra movement, uh, more than just delivering directly to us from on high the things that we need. The fact that you invite us to be a part of that movement in the lives of others. And through us, you are pleased to deliver good words of encouragement and love and provision and presence, um, answers to hard questions. Father God, thank you for inviting us into your work here, your ministry here on earth. Help us to be bold and brave, to respond when your spirit moves us and invites us to reach out to the unseen, and the unloved, and the uncertain in our midst, Father God. Fill our hearts with joy as we see you filling others with your providence and your love. Help us always to be mindful of your presence, Lord, even as we hold the sacrament before us, God, the way that you gave it all, your body, your blood, your presence, your love, your sacrifice, for your love for us, Father God. Help us to steward that love and that provision well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would all stand. Just one
a very dry mouth prayer here. <clears throat> Lord, go with us uh, into your city to be with your people, Father God. Help us to be a loving presence and reassurance that you are still faithful to this day. Um, draw our eyes to those that you would walk us to, Lord. Fill our minds and our hearts with encouragement for those who need to hear from you, Lord. Make us brave in the face of all the challenges and difficulties of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.